Welcome to Unboxing Fulfillment, the modern B2C fulfillment podcast. I'm your host, Chad Wersaka. Our guest today is Matt Hertz, the co-founder of Second Marathon, which helps high-growth e-commerce startups build and scale and manage their supply chain operations. Matt spent many years as a supply chain operations professional with high-growth brands like Birchbox, Rent the Runway, and Ship. And in 2017, he decided to move to the consulting side of things and leverage his operational knowledge to help other brands grow. So much of what Second Marathon does is helping brands find the right order fulfillment partner. That was a mouthful and a big introduction, Matt. Welcome to the podcast. Thanks, Chad. Excited to chat with you here. Likewise. One thing a lot of our listeners all share in common is they really like to just hear the beginning story, how you ended up where you did, what led you there. It really was, I think, for you, some pain that you had that started Second Marathon. You want to kind of add on to how you started the consulting firm? Sure. Yes. Like most people, my professional career hasn't been seemingly all that linear. I started in finance, actually, you know, out of college and did the finance thing for a couple of years, but got bored of that because, well, it's finance. And back in 2009, I joined a little known startup back then called Rent the Runway a women's dress rental business, which many listeners might be familiar with. Joined them really early on in the business, their fifth or sixth employee, their first full-time ops hire. Didn't have any operational background. I could barely spell FedEx at the time. Back then, you know, I was just wearing the hat of fungibility and tried to figure things out and did a good enough job where I was able to parlay that into the second opportunity I had in my early ops career, which was at also at the time, a little-known startup called Birchbox which has grown to be at least a few years ago at its peak was a very large business shipping about a million orders a month. I was their first full-time employee, naturally their first ops hire as well, and was really tasked with overseeing the end-to-end supply chain. So shipping, fulfillment, packaging, procurement, a couple other functions in there. Use that as an opportunity to parlay into another role a few years later when we hit that million order a month milestone to move out to California to join SHIP, as you mentioned in the intro, Chad. Spent a few years there. You know, Ship was a logistics startup, sort of like a mobile post office or a UPS store on wheels, if you will. And back in 2017, about five and a half, almost six years ago now, I decided to take a pause. You know, at the time I just got in my green card. So that gave me the ability to start my own business or be unemployed or as us millennials say, be self-employed and decided to do that. Started doing a bunch of consulting and advising. Saw that there was a lot of potential for the skill set that I had developed over the prior eight or 10 years at that point, and eventually formalized it into the business I run today with a good friend of mine who's now my business partner, a business called Second Marathon. And really, the goal of Second Marathon has been to be that resource that my partner Ryan and I did not have when we were running our respective e commerce or CPG startups. You know, we're, we're really seeking to allow brands to avoid a lot of the same pitfalls and bumps and bruises that I incurred in the first chapter of our career. So hopefully, Chad, that gives you a little bit of background on who I am and how things came to be to where I am today with Second Marathon. You know, a lot of those brands that you've mentioned, they were all grew and matured, but you were there from the beginning. And I imagine there's a lot of frustration for the brands that are trying to grow and scale to find the right partner. But 
oftentimes it's through coming through somebody like yourself at Second Marathon or consulting support or accessing those resources. So any particular frustrations, stories that you can share? Like, why do you think growing brands are so frustrated and not finding the right partner, the 3PL partner that is? Sure. I think part of the challenge, and I know you can't see me, but using air quotes here, the reason why everyone hates their 3PL is because part of that reason, I believe, and why you know 3PLs are generally a customer satisfaction industry. And 3PL's defense, it's not all their fault. A lot of it is, you know, the responsibility that the customer, that the client doesn't necessarily want to admit. So, but a lot of the frustration or challenges starts before the lights turn on at a warehouse, figuratively speaking, with a new client. And, you know, nowadays there's so many 3PLs out there, literally thousands and thousands of warehouses just here in the United States. Many of them have raised a lot of outside capital, a lot of venture capital. And, they are spending a tremendous amount of money in growth and acquisition to win new customers. They have, you know, they're using all the modern channels like YouTube and TikTok and Instagram, just Google and SEO, that it's so easy to find a 3PL. And for many modern 3PLs, you know, we call them tech-enabled 3PLs. They make it so easy to onboard and to trade your Shopify API tokens and now all your information, your product catalog is loaded in the new warehouse. It's so, so simple. It takes just minutes to essentially onboard and integrate with a new 3PL. But what's often overlooked is, is this the right partner for me? Just because they make it easy to work with them initially to onboard, to get started, it doesn't mean it's the right partnership. So you know, thankfully, that is a big frustration and that is a big challenge because we've made a business out of trying to avoid a lot of those same pitfalls by trying to educate you know our clients and the market overall that there's more to the relationship than just who can integrate the fastest or who's the cheapest and i believe chad will get into some of those specifics later but you know much of the frustration really stems from ineffective matchmaking in finding the right fulfillment partner for your business i agree it's interesting because you know i tell our associates a lot of times in a town hall or a startup meeting when you're standing out inside the uh, the facility, you know, I ask them to turn around and look at the equipment that we're operating or look at the racks or some robot or some this or some that or technology enabled. But all 3PLs today likely are using all or some of that. And it's very hard to differentiate between providers outside of marketing, but you really do have to find the fit. And so that's a good, I think, segue is how do you help brands find the fit? What's the type of criteria that you use to, to know whether it's a right fit? Sure. Well, you know, our process is very, and we like to say it's a full service process. From time to time, we have clients come to us and say, oh, can you just help us with this one aspect? You know, just evaluating three different proposals, just running a financial comparison across them. and Or, hey, can you just do X, Y, and Z? And more often than not, we say no, because it really is this full end-to-end process. It's difficult for us to put our stamp of approval on a specific 3PL just by looking at their financials. So our process really starts with getting to know the brand. And you know, our first conversation is, think of it as almost like a first date with, a, with your spouse or with your significant other. You don't get into all the details on that first date. You want to know a little bit about them. Just get a general sense of what they're looking for, what interests them. And when you think about a brand... You know, our way of achieving that is not to ask, oh, how much do you want to pay with your 3PL or, you know, what's your ideal 
KPI or SLA service level for a specific operating performance. It's more about culture and fit. What type of partner are you looking for? Does working with a mom and pa or smaller husband, wife, maybe it's a single 50,000 square foot facility and pick a market, more of that boutique feel, does that resonate with you more? Or are you looking for a global full service provider or a provider who can stand you up on both the East Coast and the West Coast? Or maybe it's a hybrid of those three or four options. So for us, it really begins with what's important to you, the brand. Obviously, price is important. We've never met a brand that couldn't care less about the economics of a proposal. But I think increasingly, what we're seeing and what we believe is right is there's a lot more to operational performance and price and finding the right partner. It's things like account management. What is that account management like? It's things like IT and visibility and dashboards. No longer is it sufficient to just drop a bunch of CSV files on a customer at three in the morning every morning, right? They want to see what's going on in real time, get access to the portal, be able to edit orders and make changes, things that historically scare off 3PLs and warehouses because of the things that are hard to scale. But those are the things that increasingly the younger generation, Gen Zers and folks that are even much younger than I am as a middle-aged millennial over here, as I like to joke, these are the attributes that are increasingly important. So there's so much more to finding the right match or finding the right partner than just economics and operational performance. Matt, what's another type of supply chain challenge do you think that exists right now for brands that are fast growing? What are the ones that they're dealing with today that you see? I think it's everything you might expect or you know, that listeners would guess. It's unknown demand, which I know it sounds somewhat elementary to say, but it's true. It happened a lot during COVID where the demand was through the roof, but it was very much unknown. And right now, with inflationary worries and recessionary worries and who knows what's next worries, demand planning leads to an incredible amount of challenges. And you know, often demand planning is a function that's, that lives outside of operations. I realize that, but it obviously has significant downstream impact on the operators and the warehouse or your 3PL. So unknown demand is significant. Volatility in freight rates continues to be a concern. Fortunately, the volatility is a lot less today than it was 18 months ago when containers were at a zero to the invoices or to the quotes you get today. And that's kind of where, where freight rates were. So that was a significant headwind. You know, rising parcel costs, UPS and FedEx, and even postal service costs. The carriers are really, really good at making sure that their rates go up at least once a year. It seems like it's almost every quarter a new demand surcharges and peak surcharges. So combating rising shipping rates, you know, is a significant challenge. And then just broadly, challenges with 3PL providers. A lot of that stems from what we spoke about a minute or two ago, but because the wave of 3PL providers are still working with existing brands who are struggling with them, we believe that in the coming quarters, as the waves start to die down with a lot of these venture-backed partners, and it begins to revert more towards the mean to folks like yourselves who are established providers and true 3PLs, I think there will continue to be a shakeout amongst many brands looking to leave and really right-set their operations. Yeah, I think so too. I think there's a consolidation that will soon occur into the space. One thing I've been really excited to talk to you about, Matt, is the success story out of Birchbox. So you took it when you were there, Birchbox went from around 500 orders up to more than a million that you had mentioned. 
that's a pretty intense growth rate and ride. And I'm sure there's a whole bunch of good stories that exist in there, all good lessons, but some good advice to take from it. What type of advice would you give brands right now that are growing like a birch box, things to do, things not to do, that are trying to emulate what you did? You know, I've been removed from the company for gosh, almost nine years is when I left to take a role out in California. So it's been almost a decade. And I started 13 years ago. So it's a little obsolete. I think it's still relevant, what I'm about to say. But I wish I realized the significance of what we were building at the times, the walls that we were breaking down in both high growth e-commerce as well as in subscription commerce. We'll kind of pat ourselves on the back. But you know, Birchbox was really the pioneer, the first modern online subscription business. Of course, there was Harry and David's and like the Fruit of the Month Club and you know other subscription and Columbia Records also existed several decades ago. But Birchbox was really the first. And one thing that we struggled with or that I personally struggled with was finding logistics partners, be it 3PLs, warehouses, carriers, packaging vendors, and other partners along the fulfillment or logistics stack who really believed us when we looked at them in their eyes and said, we're going to grow. 50% month over month. Today, we're doing 3,000 orders a month. Next month, we're going to do 6,000. And the following month, we're going to do 10,000. And the following month, we're going to do 15,000. And then we're going to jump to 30,000. And you know, even to today, if you have a brand that suggests that type of growth, you can say, okay, okay, yeah, right. You know, I'll see it when I believe it. Let alone 12 or 13 years ago when e-commerce was still relatively in its infancy compared to where it is today. So for us, it was really, as I said, breaking down a lot of the walls for the broader subscription movement that followed behind us. So I was so deep in the weeds back then that I really never had a chance to lift my head up and acknowledge the gravity or the significance of what we were building. I didn't have a notepad next to me where I was jotting down life lessons and things like that to look back on years from now. But for me, the most important lesson I learned from that experience being part of that rocket ship, and it was somewhat similar, I rent the runway, but I left before the business really became significant and huge. But for me, the biggest lessons is to surround yourself with smart people. Back in 2010, when I joined Birchbox, I was 24 or maybe 25. I was two years into my operating career. I couldn't possibly have helped the business get to where it did four years later operationally just through my own intellect or know-how. It was surrounding myself with both internal folks who were smarter than me, and I'm the first to admit that, be it colleagues, direct reports, managers, etc., cross-disciplinary relationships that were garnered, but also external partners, finding the right 3PLs and fulfillment partners, shipping carriers, packaging vendors, who could really hold me up or hold us up and support us and really give us the edge when we needed it. And going back to the question before this around finding the right partner, it is things like this, the intangibles, the goodwill and the relationships that are far more important than trying to nickel and dime a partner and trying to save a penny or two because they'll remember that. And supply chain and fulfillment is really the business of exceptions management. So you need to have the right folks around you and who support you. So when the trains don't run on time, one or three or 5% of the time, they're there to make your day a little bit better. When you were at Birchbox, You'd mentioned demand planning at the top of the conversation. Did you have a sense that the brand was growing at that trajectory or did it come on unexpected or did it come on as planned? I'm only hesitating because I haven't thought about that question in that same light. 
You know, I think my answer is we knew while we were building it that it was impressive. None of us were mathematicians, but we can do the math and see the growth and realize we were doing some pretty interesting and novel things. But when I joined the business and there were three or four of us around a folding table in an office in New York, no way do we believe that, frankly, even our best case financial models did not predict a million orders a month, certainly in that short amount of time. So we just had to wing it and figure it out and try our best to keep up with the exceptional demand that was coming our way. And my job as the operator, as the person in charge of the supply chain, you know, I always said kind of somewhat tongue in cheek, but also very truthful that if our business ever failed, or if we had demand shocks to the downside, I didn't want that to be because of my shortcomings. I sort of defined failure as putting up a wait list or curbing demand because my fulfillment partners or logistics partners couldn't keep up. Fortunately, that never really was the case. And you know, I applaud all the partners that I surrounded myself with. But like I said, we didn't totally grasp the magnitude of what we were building. We were in the heat of the moment and in the weeds. So you really, it sounds like, relied on the intangibles. You had the intuition to recognize that early on, the intangibles that still are with you today and really smart people and just building the relationships across the industry. Did you know where to go back then? I'm assuming the answer was no. You fell into it and learned how it was. But when you were growing, you really didn't know, I suppose, at the time. No, I didn't. And I was only two years in when I started. I mean, when I left, I had a humble six-year career. So I still wasn't an expert by any means. So where I thought you were going to go with this question, Chad, was if I was running Birchbox again today with the experience that I've now earned or developed, would I have done things differently? And I mean, of course I would have. And I can't imagine the outcome would have been any better than it was. So a lot of it just comes down to luck rather than you know operational prowess or skill. This episode is sponsored by Amware Fulfillment. Amware is a third-party fulfillment company that provides pick, pack, and ship services to established direct-to-consumer brands. With fulfillment centers in every region of the U.S., Amware supports one- to two-day ground delivery to 95% of the country. In short, Amware takes care of everything after the click. Learn more at amwarefulfillment.com. Well, I don't think you can underestimate the value of working together with the right people. At the end of the day, you got to enjoy who you work with and for. And if you get so lucky, even without a process to find early on, you're a lot better for it. But I think now that we've all been experienced, we all know how important that is. And we try to uncover all those intangibles outside of a pricing sheet. So that's awesome. That's a good story. How about a failure? When you do look back though, Do you have any particular, not just with Birchbox, but any particular failures that you, looking back at the career and the brands that you've represented or even current that you look back and say, man, these are some pretty big failures that I would love to tell some audience members here listening not to repeat. Failure is a harsh word. Maybe I'm just more of that glass half full type of personality. I vehemently believe that every failure leads to successes and learnings, even in a roundabout way, or even if those successes aren't immediately could happen a few years later down the road. Clearly, I've been part of several brands that have been runaway successes, as we've discussed. I've also been part of a startup that if you define that as running out of cash and closing shop, right? That's probably the biggest fail you can have, at least kind of the textbook definition of fail. But 
candidly or maybe interestingly, the fact that startup failed and I will personally take responsibility having been a member of the team and the senior team there, I've undoubtedly learned more lessons that have helped me avoid similar pitfalls and have the success that I'm enjoying today. And I mean that in the most humble way. Most of those lessons have come from being part of a failure than believing that everything is that hockey stick or everything is up and to the right, as they say. It sounds kind of odd to say, but I'm thankful that I had a failure earlier in my career that didn't cost me personally much, if anything, at all. I mean, certainly there's an opportunity cost at a startup, but going through those motions and winding down a startup and seeing layoffs and seeing metrics not meet our internal goals and standards is really difficult. So for me, the most important lessons that came out of that failure is not how to preserve cash more effectively or things like that, which are more sort of peripheral or table stakes for businesses. But for me, it came down to culture and hiring the right people, having people believe in the mission and the product that you're creating or selling or providing. And also with that failure specifically, I think there was generally a lack of experience in the employees and the folks who were building the products that we set up to build. So sort of a mismatch between the product folks who were creating solutions to problems that they didn't personally have a level of empathy with. So when I'm talking to other logistics tech businesses, I do a little bit of advising on the side. Wouldn't be a millennial if I didn't do a few other things as well. The lessons that I'm always telling startup founders and CEOs and leaders is to make sure that maybe not all the employees, but that a good subset of the employee base have an inherent understanding of the challenges and problems that you're looking to solve. Is that what you attribute that example of the company that kind of had the cash burn and ultimately, I'm assuming closed up and it's no longer a business? Do you attribute it to just not so much the cash burn? I mean, that's the result, but because all associates weren't connected culturally and understood what the brand was trying to really accomplish? Absolutely. Yeah. It's sort of like that expression, being in a square peg in a round hole. There's only so many times that you can vacillate and bang your head against the Coke machine in the back and try to throw a bunch of stuff on the wall and see what sticks, right? You have a shot clock when you're running a business, whether you're a startup or whether you're Fortune One, whether you're the largest business in America or the smallest business that started. How do you just go back to the 3PL selection or criteria for a second? since it's relevant here. So when you try to match up brands that you're representing and you're trying to match them up to the 3PL partner, you mentioned earlier, you go through this process. Is it the same process? Is it a system that you use at Second Marathon every time that you're trying to get the two to get married, if you will? Yeah, we like to run a process. And that's why I said earlier, we don't like to cheat. And we don't view this as like an a la carte process, like choose your own adventure. We've now worked with literally dozens and dozens of brands helping them lead their RFP, their 3PL RFP. So we believe that we've gotten pretty good at it. The feedback we've gotten from clients is such that we have been a really important resource. So we sort of have a process, a checklist of sorts that we walk our customers through just to make sure that we're getting the right information, the right data, the right understanding of what's important to them, and then can effectively and efficiently begin that curation process. Get a short list of partners that we think are qualified to support the brand based on the conversations we have. So we treat this decision in many ways similar to finding the right relationship partner or 
maybe a less TMI example would be finding a new direct report or hiring someone onto your executive leadership team. You're not going to have a single Zoom conversation and be like, yep, let's hire him or her tomorrow. Maybe you will, and maybe that'll work out, but chances are there's a better approach to bringing on that new partner. And what's important about that is many brands, because there are platforms like Shopify and Amazon to make it so darn easy to spin up a website in a matter of minutes or certainly hours, and that folks like myself who are not that technically savvy can have a website that looks great. Entrepreneurs and startup founders often overlook the fulfillment and some of this downstream stuff that really is the lifeblood of a business. So we encourage brands through our process to not cut corners, don't sell short the required effort, truly get to know your potential partners, and ultimately the partner, visit their facilities, talk to the folks on the ground performing the work, go there and meet Rick or Sue, who's the inventory manager or the receiving manager, get to know your account manager or the account management team. Don't just listen to the spiel that the salespeople or the executives are giving you during the initial sales call. Really treat this as if it's an extension of your team and someone that you want to work with every single day for years to come. Or limit the conversation to just a quarterly business review and feel like that's a relationship. Absolutely. How do you suppose the brands that you have represented how are they doing or performing with managing 3PLs? Do you have a feel for that? The ones that you've brought together, do they generally play well together? And are you happy with the ones that have been partnered up? We think so. We don't guarantee perfection because we step aside pretty early on in the relationship between the 3PL and the brand. We're not part of the ops team of the brand to manage that 3PL day in and day out, although that's a service that we've started to test for certain brands. But I say that because just because a brand finds the 3PL that they believe to be the best fit, and we also give our stamp of approval on that match, it doesn't mean, to your point, that the only time you need to talk to them is once a quarter for the review and expect that everything is hunky-dory. Communication is probably the leading factor of the demise between a 3PL and its customer or vice versa. The lack of communication is really what leads to why, quote, everyone hates their 3PL. Candidly, and it's weird for me to say it because my business is predicated on brands finding their next or first 3PL, but the grass isn't always greener. In fact, the grass only gets greener if you water it. And my version of watering it is managing the relationship. It's communicating and it's effective communication. It's not shouting at your ops manager or the ops director or your account manager if one day they fall below 99% on-time performance and you start waving the contract and getting mad at them. It's really having empathy for what's happening inside the four walls and talking to them. And I don't necessarily believe you need to talk to them daily or every hour, but certainly several times a week is probably healthy, even if it's just a quick five-minute, hey, our marketing team is running a promotion next week, or we're thinking about launching this product. What do you think about it? How should we engineer the boxes, and so on and so forth. So the relationships don't just solve themselves, even if you think that there's a the perfect 3PL for you. Communication is so overlooked and so critical to a successful relationship, just like it is between two individuals. Yeah. And especially by changing out 3PL providers, if you're not changing your own process as a brand, the cadence or the frequency in which you're talking or 
the quality of the conversations. It doesn't matter who your partner is going to be. If that doesn't exist, you'll constantly be replacing 3PL partners and vice versa customers if the provider is not doing the same. We're running up a little bit on some time and I apologize. It's a great conversation, but we've had a lot of conversation before the click, but after the click is obviously the shipping and the parcel costs. I'm just would like to gauge your sense on what can brands do to help bring down some of those costs? How have you found 3PLs maybe or brands trying to leverage their volume or their scale to bring down parcel costs? Do you think it's even possible in the environment we're in right now? It's certainly more difficult. One of the most significant financial values or values rooted to cost that we pitch to brands looking to outsource is that there is a huge value in working with the 3PL where you can take advantage of typically their proprietary and competitive shipping rates, where you can we can take advantage of their collective bargaining power that they have or collective purchasing power that they have with the UPSs and the FedExes of the world, as well as possibly to access certain carriers that maybe a single smaller brand can't access independently, whether it's some of the regional carriers or there's certain postal workshare partners or alternative carriers in the market that are really becoming a significant, but they might not work with you if you're shipping less than, say, a couple pallets worth of parcels a day or a couple hundred pieces a day. But as soon as you're working with the 3PL, if they have a relationship with them, or if you can say, hey, have you heard of such and such carrier? Maybe they'll be effective for other brands in that building. That ability to accompany with broader infrastructure and relationships is one approach that we've seen certain brands a significant amount of money from either their incumbent 3PL, which may be smaller or doing it themselves. So I think that's a significant approach. But the second thing I'd say, Chad, is you know everyone's scared of Amazon, right? And there's certainly reason to be scared of Amazon, certainly not from a customer's perspective. I'm not well, I'm scared at how good they are at logistics. It's scary how good they are. But it's really important as a brand as a shipper to understand if your product must arrive at a customer's door quickly and quickly is maybe under two days. Not all brands have to compete with Amazon on speed. If you're shipping a commodity, you probably do need to compete with them. If your product is not a commodity, if it's a brand, if it's something that a customer has the patience to wait a couple extra days for to receive because they really want that specific brand, like that away piece of luggage or that hex clad pot or pan, or I'm thinking of some other brands that we've supported in the last couple of years, you probably have the opportunity to use a more deferred or more economical method to get it to the customer's door. So long as you share visibility into how long this will take. I think a huge opportunity in brands checkout flows or in their shipping programs is not so much how quickly can the 3PL fulfill that order. Most are pretty good at shipping today's orders today or today's orders by tomorrow. But where I think there's a huge gap is in checkout experiences where the shipper, the brand, doesn't dictate clearly how long that package will take to arrive at the customer's door. It says things like economy shipping or ground shipping or standard shipping, language like that. But what the heck does that mean? Right? If I'm sitting here in Nashville, there's a lot of fulfillment centers right around me in Louisville and in the Ohio Valley. And there's a really good chance that if I order from many e-commerce businesses today on a Monday... They ship a UPS ground. It'll get to me tomorrow. But right now, their checkout experience is, say, three to seven days. And it's just wrong. It's misleading. And that's what leads to a lot of abandonment where people go to Amazon. They say, the heck with the brand. I'm just going to buy it on Amazon because I see on Amazon, it'll get to me this afternoon or tomorrow or in two days. So there's so much opportunity to 
revise or amend that checkout shipping experience that can help circumvent the need to continuously hammer your carrier, try to chip away on some costs with PS or FedEx. I'm seeing the same thing. I kind of relate it to this. It's like when you list a salary, if you go and apply for a job and some states now require to post the salary range. And if the salary pays a minimum of 100000 up to 150000 that's the salary range for the role. Anybody who's applying for that job probably thinks, oh, I probably qualify for the 150. I'm a 150 candidate. They're always putting themselves probably at the high end of the scale. And I think that's what customers do when it comes to those shipping ranges. When somebody using your example puts three to seven day shipping, I think most customers probably are saying, oh, well, I'll probably get it in three, not seven, three. And then they're disappointed when it actually is seven because they already had the expectation that it's three days, which isn't the case. And I think the opportunity personally for me is what I hear from customers is they would trade speed for just better checkpoint compliance or better visibility so it doesn't go without that checkpoint. So when it is three or four days, they see an outbound scan in a day or two that goes missing. And that's what I think the next time they go to order, they do abandon the carts and they don't reship. So I think defining that transit is something that definitely needs to modify going forward within the industry. Well, Matt, thank you very much for the time today. Where can people go to find more information about yourself or Second Marathon? Obviously, we'll post links to it onto the YouTube and podcast. But if you'd like to take a moment, I'm sure they'd like to hear. I think the best place to go to the one-stop place is secondmarathon.com. The word second spelled out, marathon.com. And there you can find my email, link to my Twitter. I also have a free newsletter where I discuss e-com and logistics. So encourage you to sign up there through the flow. Fantastic. Thanks again, Matt. And thanks for our listeners for joining today. This concludes our episode of Unboxing Fulfillment, the modern B2C fulfillment podcast. Stay safe, everyone.